Welcome back to episode 6 of the Pulsock Podcast. I'm Dr. Jerome Devitt. Today, having spent two episodes discussing Europe and its institutions, it's time to dig a little deeper into an issue that's dominating Irish politics at the moment, namely Brexit. The goal with this episode is not to give you a full and detailed analysis of every facet of Brexit. For that, I'd point you to RTE's Tony Connolly and his excellent podcast, Brexit Republic. If you want a very good starting point for assessing the impact of Brexit on the borderlands and Northern Ireland, I'd point you to Hugh Linehan's interview with my friend Simon Carswell on the Irish Times Inside Politics podcast of the 8th of February 2019. I'll include links to both of those podcasts in the episode notes on www.pulsogpodcast.com, along with lots of other useful resources. Instead, my goal here today is to give a broad overview to students, many of whom hadn't even begun their study of politics when the referendum votes were cast in the UK on the 23rd of June 2016. At the end of the episode, I'll also highlight about a half a dozen ways in which you could use the content of this episode in your exams in June. The tough thing about this episode, from my perspective though, is that while nothing much has actually happened with Brexit since June 2016, there's still no deal agreed, the range of possible outcomes, the political calculus if you will, has been in a state of constant and dramatic change on what seems like a daily basis. So to help me navigate these strong tidal waters, I sat down with Professor John O'Brennan, the Jean Monnet Professor of European Integration in Maynooth University and guru of all things Brexit. Both John and his colleagues in the politics and sociology departments in Maynooth have been exceptionally supportive of the Pulsock teachers from day one. On behalf of my Pulsock teaching brethren, I extend to them a special word of thanks. By the time you sit down to listen to this episode, you might know the answers to many of the imponderables of Brexit that eluded us during our 2018 conversation. That doesn't mean that this episode becomes obsolete. Far from it. In fact, I'd be more interested in you seeing how Professor O'Brennan shapes and supports his arguments. And if you get nothing else from this episode other than the fact that knowledge and expertise are actually indispensable, it'll have been 30 minutes of your time well spent. So let's dive in. It's worth bearing in mind that the monumental Brexit vote took place just weeks before the first cohort of students began their study of politics and society. But don't worry, the current news landscape means that there will be plenty of seismic political events unleashing themselves to keep future students engaged and perplexed for years to come. It's also probably because I've spent much of the last six years thinking and working as an historian that I got the ball rolling by asking Professor O'Brennan to give us a brief historical outline of the EU's relationship with the UK since World War II. I did this to help you develop at least some longer-term context for the 2016 decision. Here's how he outlined that relationship. The UK has always had a difficult relationship with the European Union and its predecessor, the European Economic Community. In fact, scholars refer to the UK as the awkward partner. And this is because at every step along the way, while it's been a member, it has objected to 
proposed changes to the European constitutional order or it's had problems with the budget and has presented real difficulties for the other partners uh, to contend with. So the referendum didn't come out of the blue. It wasn't just that the British people decided they were unhappy. Uh, I think that problem and that real um, fissure in the relationship can be traced back even to the post-war period. It's an irony, actually, that Winston Churchill is thought of as one of the kind of foundational figures for the European project. Why? Because after World War II, he was very much in favour of a United States of Europe. The only problem was he didn't see Britain being part of that. He saw Britain as a kind of island nation, an island apart. Uh, and subsequent to that, uh, British leaders were very slow to realise what was actually going on on the continent and that they needed to be part of it. So when they did eventually join, they did so very reluctantly. Many of their leaders still saw themselves as being quite distinct in identity terms and in terms of global power as well. Uh, and I think all through the EU period, despite the fact that the EU granted Britain all these concessions, for example, uh, a big budget rebate so that uh, Britain actually doesn't pay in as much to the budget as Germany does, for example, a similar sized country. Uh, subsequent to that, they had opt-outs from the single currency, which meant that they didn't need to join the single currency. Uh, opt-outs on internal affairs, policing, asylum, and so on. So despite the fact that the EU actually tried to meet them halfway, or even more than halfway, through all of this period, uh, they were still very unhappy and that brought us to the point then where uh, a referendum was being mooted and eventually was conceded by David Cameron. Uh, what would the, uh, the Eurosceptics within the UK Parliament, what would their main grievances have been? Uh, a lot of their grievances revolve around this very slippery concept of sovereignty. They argued that uh, European integration was a kind of one-way bet that once they joined, their sovereignty was compromised and kept being compromised, or if you like, their sovereignty kept being reduced by what they saw as the ever-advancing kind of tide of centralization and federalism. Uh, now, actually, that view is very much at odds with most of the other member states because they don't look at sovereignty in that black-and-white way, that if they pool their sovereignty with other member states if they choose to cooperate with each other in selected areas they don't see that as giving away their sovereignty rather it actually enhances it. That's what people I think in Ireland feel I think it's what people in Germany feel in France feel uh, but UK policymakers have been very different from the beginning and it proved almost impossible I think to reconcile those different visions if you like of identity and sovereignty. I continued by asking Professor O'Brennan about the memorable events of the referendum campaign. Well, first, I was in Brussels the day that Mr. Cameron made his now infamous Bloomberg speech in 2013. It was at the beginning of the Irish presidency of the Council of Ministers. It's really instructive uh, on that day because I saw five Irish cabinet ministers in the European Parliament speaking to parliamentary committees while Cameron was in another part of Brussels saying, we're going to hold a referendum and get out, potentially. Uh, now, I think 
some of the contradictions became very clear very quickly. For example, David Cameron and George Osborne, his Chancellor of the Exchequer, who was almost his equal within that government, they made their careers from Euroscepticism, from you know, deploying this anti-European rhetoric uh, in their speeches and in the media and so on. And then they turned 360 degrees and said, we must remain in. And the campaign itself was also very noteworthy because of the lack of mobilization on the Remain side. Uh, one of the things they abjectly failed to do was to mobilize young people. And we had just gone through the marriage equality referendum in Ireland, and I can remember writing a piece for the Irish Examiner saying the Brexit referendum campaign was in trouble, and if they wanted to succeed, they had to reach out through social media and through other uh, uh, fora to younger people. And if they did manage to engage younger people, they would win the vote. But that wasn't, of course, what happened. And on the other side, uh, those who argued for leave uh, engaged in mischaracterization of the EU, lie after lie after lie, typical of the kind of tabloid demagoguery that people like Boris Johnson had pioneered. Remember, he was sacked from the Times newspaper for plagiarism, making things up in the late 80s. He then went back to Brussels as the correspondent for the Daily Telegraph, did exactly the same thing. So many of the myths that people have in Britain about the UK-EU relationship go back to that period. And not only were they not countered effectively in the course of the referendum, people like Johnson and uh, Nigel Farage and others uh, lied through their teeth about what Brexit would actually mean for Britain when it left. Poor little Oshin needed a bit of help with his intro today, but sure don't we all sometimes. On this week's Untangling the Terminology, I asked Professor O'Brennan to explain to us the somewhat opaque world of opinion polls that we hear so much about in the media. I asked him particularly how it was that the opinion polls in the run-up to Brexit got the predicted result so wrong. Well, there are lots of um, analyses that are being done, not just of the Brexit referendum, but remember that in the United States, most pollsters called that election, overwhelmingly they called it for Hillary Clinton, said she'd win by a big margin, even very, very late in the day. Uh, the British general election last time, similarly, they... Uh, actually two elections in a row the polls have called it wrong in the first case I was thought that the Labour Party might win uh, it didn't, the Tory party did and in the most recent election it was very similar uh, in that the polls were suggesting that the Tories would be returned to office with a larger majority, that didn't happen so there are big, big question marks about the science and methodology behind opinion polling and on, you can see this on both sides of the Atlantic, actually. It seems to be um, far from uh, effective in actually capturing what's going on in our... And I think it's because the methods that are used by pollsters uh, are actually way behind where our societies are. So all the students need to be looking at this with a very critical eye when they, when they read those articles in the newspaper. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
What I'm going to do is put a referendum result map on the episode notes page of PulseOcPodcast.com. If you look at that map, you'll see some very stark contrasts across the UK in how people voted in the Brexit referendum. I asked Professor Brennan if he could shed some light on those voting patterns. Well, I think some people undoubtedly voted against the European Union as a way of getting back uh, against the, what they called the establishment. Uh, so in saying no to the European Union, they were giving two fingers to David Cameron, to his colleagues and everything that they hate. Uh, you can see echoes of this in the United States. The vote for Trump was also anti-Washington. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you can see it in France. Marine Le Pen uh, framed her campaign as uh, the true French versus the globalists. And if you look at Trump and the people around him as well, this is what they obsess about. And so this was very much anti-establishment. It was anti-London. It was anti-EU. It was anti-globalization. And the irony is that, two ironies, a lot of people who were concerned about immigration had virtually no immigrants around them. So the, you know, the regions of the United States that voted most strongly for Brexit are the places you would be least likely to find Poles, Hungarians and others because they're living in different parts of the country. And the other great irony of this, and one of the tragedies, I think, is that many of those regions in the north of England, the northeast, the northwest, are regions that benefited very significantly from EU funding over the years. People appearing to vote against their own interest. uh, Exactly. Uh, These are exactly the communities, I think, that are going to suffer most from Brexit if it actually happens. This week's The Students Strike Back will be a little different. Yes, we will talk to some students as usual and get their opinions. But I also want to talk with a teacher, Miss Vicky Malcolm, who gave so generously of her time in the last episode to help us understand the EU's institutions. This week, she's going to offer us an insight into what Brexit might mean now and in the future for a British citizen living and working in Ireland. But first, here are Jack, Malika and Eve. So, Jack, do you feel like you're a European? Yeah, I do feel like I'm European, um, mainly because I'm aware of the small stuff that the EU does for us and the big stuff that I don't think people are aware of, such as the like uh, freedom of travel, Erasmus years, free roaming charges, and especially how like they've prevented any world wars again in Europe. Next, I asked Malika, did she feel more Irish than European in her outlook, and whether... Brexit changed that outlook. Definitely, because like Ireland is, it's where I, it's my home, and Europe comes after that. Like I was, like it was born here. I've lived here. My family's from here, and my my parents remember a time before the European Union, and there'll be a time after it. But Ireland, Ireland will always remain, I think, in its own way. And the only thing with Brexit is that it's kind of enhanced that Irishness. In a way, I remember being in the European Parliament last year and this girl came up to me and she was like, oh, where are you from? And I was like, oh, Ireland. She said to me, uh, it's so great to meet someone else British here. And it just, I was so like angry because 
Irish, because Irish is it's your identity. It's it's more than just your country. It's your everything that go that goes with it, the culture, the language, and the belief in it. Uh, Eve, do you feel do you feel European? Um, in some senses, I don't because we're so geographically separated from it. So the continental countries such as Spain, France, Germany, they all feel a lot closer and we feel a bit separated. Also, I think we'd feel closer to England and since they're leaving, that's kind of affected our European identity. But because we're so economically linked and there's so many things like laws that are made in the EU, I think that's a reason why we would feel connected to the EU. Do you think Brexit might lead you to feel more European? Yeah, I think... Brexit has made people more aware of the things the EU do for us. I think before we were kind of living in a bit of ignorance about how reliant we are on it, but I think seeing uh, Britain having to leave and the problems that's causing them has shown us how much we really do need the EU. I went on to ask Miss Malcolm how she felt about Brexit. Now, I thought this was going to be a relatively simple, straightforward question, but it ended up having a, quite a complex answer. On a personal level, um, it's, it, it's very difficult. I was I was very upset when on the the, the morning after the referendum um, because I, I just couldn't believe that that had been allowed to happen. I think once you leave the UK, and I have always, because I've been a language teacher, I've always travelled, so I've lived in Germany, I've lived in France, I've lived in Austria. And I think when you have that experience of different cultures and living in a different culture and using your language and just being able to exist somewhere other than the UK, you're really open to the idea of there being no borders and um, freedom of movement. It's very important. And now that that is potentially going, and it's also a decision that I wasn't able to take part in because I've lived here for so long, I no longer have a vote in the UK, so I, I it's a decision that is imposed on me as a British citizen, but I had no active role in the democratic process that resulted in the decision. Um, my daughter, who is six, was born here in Ireland, so she is Irish, she has an Irish passport, and I foresee the day when we have to go our separate ways at the airport and I go through the non-EU channel and she goes through the EU channel. So on a personal level, it's huge for me. And I think just professionally as well as a language teacher, but also since 2013, I've been quite actively involved in the European Studies programme in the school. And that really opens your eyes to the opportunities that are out there. We have had the good fortune to take part, for example, in Euroscola on three different occasions now. So you get to see, you get to go to the European Parliament in Strasbourg and see democracy in action and think all of this has been closed off to me little by little now, um, that everything is just going to become much more difficult. That also led me to ask if she, above all people, had a European identity. That's a tricky question. It's a question that they love to put on the French leaving cert paper, for example. Do you consider yourself to be Irish in this case, or do you consider yourself to be a European? I'd be honest, I don't know I don't know anybody who would say I'm European above their their nationality. Um but I, I am I'm European in the sense that um I think Brexit is just utterly utterly wrong um, and the opportunities that are being closed off to to everybody but to young people in particular that I don't even know that people are 
cognizant of what's what the actual outcome of this is going to be we are able to look in from outside and say this this is a disaster but I actually think when I go home to the UK and I talk to my family who are still there there's a it's hard to, to, to describe it, but there's a totally different perception of what Brexit means in the UK than there is in the other 27 member states. Absolutely. Um, and this, the idea of the, you know, the Brexit bus and all the lies that were told about the NHS and etc, etc, is people actually believe that. We find that impossible to believe that they could, this is just guff that was coming out, but, but they actually believe that and, and it's the reason that they made their decision. The decision was made purely on migration issues, purely. And it's it's astonishing to us, but um, that's the way it is. And it's it's uh, it's going to be very difficult. I don't know. I don't know where, where I'm going, whether I apply for, for, for Irish citizenship, which I can do and retain my British passport. Um, but that's a long way around of not answering your question as to whether I feel like European or not. Um, yes, I do. My outlook is most definitely European. But there's always a special place in my heart for, for home. It's time for Quote of the Day. This week's Quote of the Day is very short, and I'll deal with it but briefly. From shortly after she took over as the UK Prime Minister in July 2016, Theresa May deployed the slogan, Brexit means Brexit. Normally, I try and explain the quote of the day, but I don't know a human on earth who actually knows what that phrase means. So, why do I mention it? Well, when you hear a vacuous slogan like this, I'd like all the students out there to be really, really wary. Are they talking rubbish? because they have no brain? Are they talking rubbish because they hold their listeners in contempt? Or is it because they are trying to distract you from something else? No matter which answer seems most plausible to you, I'd suggest that none of the answers are any damn good at all. Beware of empty rhetoric. It's as empty as the UK's current plan for leaving the EU, perhaps. Or maybe I'm just a born cynic, but then again, Pulsock means Pulsock. Now that I've gotten that particular gripe off my chest, we can return to the final part of my conversation with Professor O'Brannan. I ended our discussion by asking him what some of the potential consequences of Brexit might be for the EU, the UK, Ireland and even Northern Ireland. Here's how he summed up those challenges. Well, firstly, f on the European Union side, I've just come back from Brussels and very few people there have any interest in Brexit at all. It's simply not a priority other than that it's been a great irritant. It's been something that they've had to keep discussing in the Council of Ministers, but most of the member states of the EU, uh, they've no skin in the game. They export very little to the UK two, three percent of their exports, if you want to look at the majority of member states. Ireland is a different case because we have a different kind, much closer relationship uh, with you. So there are other things going on in Europe. Uh, the development of the Eurozone, the development uh, 
forwarded really by the election of uh, Emmanuel Macron in France of a much uh, more coordinated and coherent approach to security, defence, policing, migration and so on. So that's what Europeans are interested in. And it's in our part of the world, understandably, where Brexit has been an obsession for the last uh, two years or so. Uh, now, we have a lot of skin in the game, unlike a lot of the other member states. I think we've been very successful to this point in time in managing to get Irish priorities recognized and actually embedded in the negotiating documents. That's what the government wanted. It wanted to ensure that there wouldn't be no hard border, for example, on the island of Ireland, uh, and that trade could continue as seamlessly as possible over the border so that supply chains wouldn't be disrupted and so on. Now, I think Ireland has done all it could to prepare for this. We're now into unknown territory because whether we suffer or not from Brexit, and we could substantially because we're very exposed economically, but whether we do or not partly depends on whether the UK changes its attitude uh, or um, you know, within domestic politics if there's a, an election for example in Britain which could happen that could be a game changer so there's a lot of things that we don't know there are a lot of imponderables uh, that will matter as the year goes on So in then maybe the, the last group that we mentioned there is Northern Ireland and the, the issue of the hard and the soft borders I mean, what are the big risks potentially for peace and, and the economic stability of Northern Ireland? I think those risks are very serious indeed. Um, we have effectively a single island economy, even though there are two separate jurisdictions. Uh, trade over the border has been uh, increasing exponentially since the Good Friday Agreement. There have been all kinds of benefits that have come to uh, companies that trade into Northern Ireland. Uh, you can see, if you look at the Guinness supply chain, for example, the crop will start in Northern Ireland, come to Dublin uh, to the Diageo plant for treatment, and then go to Belfast for packaging, and it will then go out to other parts of the world. So we have lived in this borderless world for a long time, and what we're looking at potentially in the worst-case scenario is a hard border needing to be erected because we cannot reconcile the positions of the UK and the EU. The UK, uh, if it's going to be outside of the European Union, uh, will be outside of the customs union and the single market, and that's why a border would be necessary. The rules, if you like, of the European Union market system are such that uh, the UK, uh, by placing its, uh, itself outside, cannot have the same access to and benefits from the single market as member states. But the, the, the positive thing from our point of view is I think our state agencies and indeed private companies as well have been work conscious of this and working on this over the last 18 months, two years, unlike their equivalents in the UK. So we're as prepared, I think, as we might be, but it's not to say that this wouldn't be very damaging if it happens. I think inevitably it will be very damaging. But Ireland also could be, if you put aside concerns about the border, and we, are, we already saw in the latter part of 2017 some of the return of language and rhetoric that we hadn't seen for quite a while, uh, between London and Dublin, for example, between Belfast and Dublin. 
I think all of that can still be contained and it would be more likely to be contained if we have an actual government functioning in Northern Ireland again. Uh, we haven't had one for almost a year and that's a very serious problem because Northern Ireland isn't, it doesn't have a voice in these negotiations for that reason. But I think Ireland could be, if the British are stupid enough to persist on this course of being outside of the single market and the customs union, Ireland will be one of the big economic winners from this, if not the biggest one. But in the future, I have no doubt that we could be the destination for all of that foreign direct investment. We get a lot of it anyway, especially from the United States in technology, in the pharma sector, and so on. But we could see this displacement of investment from the UK that could benefit us enormously. And we could also see very significant displacement of people. These are EU nationals who are now very working in the UK, may have settled in the UK for many years, but they're very worried about their rights if Britain leaves the customs union and the single market. So if they were to come to Ireland, they would add greater strength again to what is already a very competitive global labour market. Certainly sounds like something which was going to be very present in the media and that students are going to be aware of well into the future. Uh, John, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us. You're welcome. So before I finish today, I want to just help you to frame Brexit in terms of what it can mean for you as a politics and society student who's facing into an exam at the end of the day. Well, Brexit relates to power and decision-making because it illustrates the mechanical operations of both the UK and the EU. It's globalisation and localisation, because it demonstrates how what is happening on the ground in one region of the UK can have ripples throughout the international system, both in the EU and beyond. It's an issue of identity, in part because a more limited view of nationalism still trumps the influence of supranational organisation like the EU. In Benedict Anderson's phrase, the EU still hasn't a fully formed, quote, imagined community like nation-states have. It's about active citizenship, because we see what the consequences are if people feel disenfranchised and stay at home on polling day. It's about human rights because of the way in which the rights guaranteed in the Good Friday Belfast Agreement may be threatened. And do you know what else it's about? It's about students opening up their eyes to the huge challenges that their country will encounter in the future. About facing those challenges head-on in a clear, informed and practical manner. And above all, when it comes to Brexit, it's about remembering that you're not a part from society, but a part of society. See you next time. <laughs>